It is that time. Time to spend a few moments with Bo. Time to spend a few moments in black history. And time to spend a few moments in darkness. I hope all is going well for you today, my friends. Because we have some terrible weather going across the country. I hope you stay safe and warm and out of the way because Mother Nature is doing her thing. In the meantime, let's slip into darkness. In 1918, the United States was in the middle of a war, supposedly to fight for democracy. My dad was born in 1908 in Georgia, and it was not a safe place for black people. Near the city of Valdosta, a white plantation owner by the name of Hampton Smith was famous for his beatings of black laborers on his farm. And because of the way he treated people, it was hard for him to find African Americans to work his land. So he turned to the peonage system, which was set up after the Civil War. The planter would went to the local jails and paid the fines of black people and then had the African-American work on the plantation until the debt was paid. Now, this would have been all right if it would have happened the way it was supposed to happen because most African-Americans would rather be outside working than locked up in a jail cell. But 31-year-old Smith was a hard, mean man. He would work the African-Americans way past the debt and wouldn't pay them for the additional work. And if you challenged him, he would pull out that long whip. And you just knew that one of these days, he would do that to the wrong person. And in May 1918, he gave Sidney Johnson, a free black man, a brutal beating. And before the week was over, Johnson took out a rifle and put two bullets in his chest. And he died on the spot. And you just know retribution was coming and it was swift. Within five days, at least 11 African Americans, 10 of whom had absolutely nothing to do with Smith's death were hunted down and slaughtered. But the worst one, my friends, was Mary Turner. Now, this is really a dark story. The lynch mob had already got her husband, Hayes, had strung him up from a tree and let his body just dangle from that limb all weekend. Now, Mary was eight months pregnant with two small children whom she had to send into hiding. She was enraged that he had been killed for no good reason 
and she was a strong-willed and stubborn woman. And Mary Turner threatened, if she knew the people who were in the mob, she would have warrants sworn out against them. But she would never get that chance. Because on that Sunday, the mob came for her. They dragged Mary to a tree, stripped her clothes off, tied her ankles together, and strung her upside down. The men ran to their cars and got gasoline and began to roast her alive. And that sent Hampton Smith's brothers and a large group of respectable people from Valdosta into a frenzy. One man took out a knife and sliced Mary's body open until the baby was ripped out of the womb and fell to the ground. It gave two cries. Someone in the mob then stepped forward and smashed the child's head into the red Georgia dirt with the heel of his boot. Darkness, my friends. Darkness and pure hatred. You see, in the South, at that time, you could do anything to black people. You could kill them in broad daylight. There would be no arrest, no trials, no conviction, or prison sentence. It was like open season on black people. It meant no one was safe. Not even an eight-month-old fetus. And black people knew it. And within... A couple of months after Mary Turner's lynching, more than 500 had already moved away, joining more than one million African Americans who were determined to leave the stench in the air of Jim Crow. The risks they took were great, and it required a great amount of courage and the states put up all kind of traps in order to openly control the oppressed population. But we were determined to get away. So we plotted our exodus with the thought in mind that we couldn't stay there. They found out that the stories that they had heard of the North was not all that it was cut out to be that the stories of ambition and hard work would be rewarded no matter what color you were. And when the Chicago Defender, the premier black newspaper, stated firsthand just how cruel the North could be, did nothing to stop their desires of leaving the South. Migration is the story of America. It is the foundation from the pilgrims fleeing Europe to the millions who took advantage of the Homestead Act to go west. It is a human right to flee tyranny. But oh boy, when more than one and a half million African Americans left the land below the Mason-Dixon line, those white southern <laughs> elites were enraged.
This was no lynch mob seeking vengeance. These were mayors, governors, legislature, business leaders. Enraged over the fact that African Americans took it upon themselves to make a move without their asking. In the chambers of City Hall and in the sheriff's office, white government officials worked hand in hand with plantation, lumber mill, and mine owners to devise an array of obstacles and laws to stop African Americans from exercising their right to find better jobs, to search for good schools, indeed simply to escape the ever-present terror of lynch mobs and the powerful and so-called respectable white South rose up to stop the great migration and interfere with the rights of workers to move from place to place at their own discretion. The great migration was fed by northern industries' desperate need for labor. World War I, which began in 1914, increased orders for manufacturing goods like guns, battleships, steel, while at the same time reduced the traditional workforce of European immigrants responsible for producing those goods. You see, the flow of immigrants had dropped from one and a half million in 1914 to just over 300,000 in 1915. Business leaders looking for an untapped source of labor soon realized that there was a vast pool of African-Americans who previously had been shut out of the industrial workforce. At one time, the Ford Motor Company, as well as U.S. Steel, had signs outside their plants that said no Negroes or Mexicans need to apply. So now you got these corporations with no one to run the machinery. The immigrants aren't coming across anymore, and the whites are going into the military. So this was our chance. This was our chance, as W.E.B. Du Bois said, a chance to get the hell out of the South. Corporations like the Pennsylvania Railroad Company hired labor agents to go below the Mason-Dixon line and convince black people to abandon Dixie and come north. It must have been to the hard-working young black man that he could see the light at the end of the tunnel. Or could he? You see, despite the 13th Amendment, African Americans had virtually no protection from a system that came painfully close to recreating the exploitation and brutality of slavery. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, White Southerners had saturated the old Confederacy in black blood. By 1920, there had been more than a thousand lynching per decade. And in the South, about 90% of those killed were African Americans. 
five states, Mississippi, Georgia, Texas, Alabama, and Louisiana, accounted for more than half of all the lynchings in the nation. You see, they they would have special trains that would bring people in to watch what they call spectacle lynchings. And that included women and children to watch a slaughter. These were standard family entertainment. Severed body parts became souvenirs and decorations hung from from homes. African-American women were not spared. They were particularly vulnerable to systematic sexual violence as rape became a part of a white man's rite of passage. All the while, the newly freed African-Americans found that ambition was forbidden. And they knew well the Dixie limit, beyond which no black could advance. Because if you acquired some land and was not in debt to the white people, you became a threat. They didn't like to see a nigger with too much. They didn't like it one bit. Whites just hated to see niggers living like people. And if you were a hard-working, ambitious man, you better not accumulate too much. No matter how hard and honest you work for it, you can't enjoy it. Because truth be told, the signs of prosperity could attract night riders and the bloodletting torture and the land seizure that would follow. Most sharecroppers at that time never saw a penny and instead owed the employer. Thus, they would start the next year in the hole, paying off debts they never actually incurred. Those who did make a profit earned between 9 and 48 cents a day for a year's hard labor in the fields. But if you challenge the system, however, it could easily result in a lynching. The point was to send a powerful signal to the larger African-American community that speaking up for one's rights and demanding appropriate compensation was a death sentence. These were the conditions that finally led the Chicago defender to exclaim that African-Americans are going to the North to get some real freedom. Under no illusion about the conditions in Chicago and elsewhere above the Mason-Dixon line, but with the labor shortage crisis growing because of the war in Europe, editor Robert Abbott deduced, now is our opportunity. Therefore, the Chicago Defender exhorted that the region where 90% of blacks currently live should be considered uninhabitable. African-Americans, the newspaper insisted, are tired of lynchings and burnings in the South, and equally important, the lack of education. That later grievance cut into the soul of the Southern whites. The belief that education spoiled 
the slave remained virtually unchanged well into the 20th century. The academic term for black children in Dawson County, Georgia, was six weeks. In Mississippi, because children were essential for picking cotton, would not be released until the last harvest was in, and African Americans were willing to go north to find good schools for their children. And so they collected what pennies they had to buy train tickets out of the South. They accepted free passes from labor agents for train rides. They waited anxiously for fare sent from relatives who had already made it north. They hid their Sunday best clothes beneath their work clothes so as not to tip off their employers that they were leaving that night. They abandoned their tools in the fields and even their final paychecks to avoid alerting the bosses to their escape plans. They hitched rides on freight trains. Between 1917 and 1918, 500,000 moved above the Mason-Dixon line and the South became scared. As more moved north, the Georgia Bankers Association cited a figure of more than $27 million in losses. You see, black labor was the foundation of the region's economy. And if blacks extricated themselves from the region as they were clearly doing, and without the approval of whites, then the entire socioeconomic structure of the South, depending on the support of that base, was in danger of collapsing. While African Americans understood the exodus as grabbing at a chance for freedom and equality, white Southerners saw the black advancement and independence as a threat to their culture and indeed their economy. For years, political and economic elites had deluded themselves into believing that African Americans were somehow satisfied with the brutal inequality of the status quo, comfortable with their wages stolen year after year, pleased to be trapped in debt slavery, with black women having absolutely no rights to their bodies, and happy to have their children illiterate, uneducated, and futureless. They thought African Americans were supposed to be content with Jim Crow, and that they stated that this immigration could only happen at the instigation of outside agitators. Clearly, somebody had to be stirring up local blacks and causing them to leave the South, and they singled out unscrupulous labor agents from the North as the culprit. White reaction with this veneer of legality and respectability answered rising up to stop African Americans from controlling their own destiny. In Macon, Georgia, policymakers put a $25,000 cost for a labor recruiting license while also requiring recommendation by 10 ministers 
10 manufacturers, and 25 other businessmen. Not only was it highly unlikely that 45 pillars of the community would vouch for a labor agent, but also the mandatory licensing fee, the equivalent in 2014 to $2.76 million, was pure extortion. That music tells me that it is that time, my friends. But be sure to listen to part two of this program. I want you to know the struggle that our parents and our grandparents went through just to get out of the South. Until next time, my friends, it has been my honor.